Good morning, everybody. So my name is Luke. Who all was here last week by a show of hands? How many of you like seeing Van dance on stage? (laughs) Me too. So when Van told me that I had to dance with him earlier that week, I was very anxious. (laughs) And so you, you may have noticed that Last week, if you were here, if you weren't here last week, we had like a dance party on stage to end the service as an expression and declaration of joy. I was kind of like hiding in the back here, really hoping, trying to position myself behind people that were in front of me so none of you could see me. But then something amazing happened. I walked back into, there's a closet back there if you can't tell behind that Christmas tree. I walked back there and I noticed a tambourine on a shelf and that was just my saving grace because if I got a tambourine in my hand, I'm banging it, I look like I'm a part of this thing up here, but I don't have to dance. <clears throat> so thank you, Lord, for the tambourine. Okay, so we're gonna finish up our series on Jesus' home life this morning, and today I'm gonna talk about hope. And before I get into it, here's the big picture idea that I wanna get, that if nothing else, this is what we take, that Hope is the mindset of the kingdom. The mindset of the kingdom is hope. And what that means is that when we find ourselves in hopelessness, the right response is to ask God, how can I have a restoration of hope? There's a reason why anxiety steals our hope about a situation. You ever had anxiety and all you're doing is imagining the worst case scenario? All you're doing is feeling hopeless. There's a reason why that happens. And so hope is the mindset of the kingdom. When we are in hope, we are thinking like God. And when we are thinking like God, we can advance his kingdom, be in connection with God, be in connection with the people around us. So we're going to talk about what it looks like to practice hope. And so this series has been a home based in, or a home based on, and then a word. So we've had a home based on joy. We've had a a home based on several things. So a home based on hope. One of the things I want to say first is that when we say home, we don't just mean those of you who are married and have kids at home. That's one example of a home, you know, husband and wife and kids. But there are plenty of other examples of homes. What we really mean when we say home is the inner core of people that you do life with. So that could be spouse and kids, but it could also be parents and siblings, if that's what your home looks like. Or maybe you live with a best friend and a grandparent. That can, that's your home. Or maybe, maybe you live alone. And so you, the, your home, there still is, you can take principles for your home from this series, but also think about the inner core of people that may not live with you, but those people that you do life with. That is your home. And so re, whatever home describes yours, what we're saying is take these principles and apply them to those group of people. Why? Because here's the deal. If I'm representing Jesus on social media, I'm you know posting great posts, I'm saying great prayers, even if I'm doing outreach and evangelism and reaching out to people and praying for people, if, if I'm doing that out here, but I'm not practicing and representing Jesus in my home, something's wrong. And so what I hope you take from this series is practical ways that you can start with the inner core of people you do life with 
and represent Jesus there. So we're going to dive into hope. Let's pray first. Holy Spirit, thank you for what you're doing this morning. Help us just to stay aligned with you in, in touch with what you're saying and how you're moving in the room. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So we're going to take a look at Romans 15 first, if you want to turn there. And the first point that I want to make is that hope is a necessity if we want to view the world like God. I've already alluded to this, that hope is the mindset of the kingdom, but hope is a necessity if we want to view the world like God. And so let's take a look at Romans 15, verse 13. This is what it says. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So how do we know that hope is the mindset of the kingdom? We know that because God is the God of hope. And the fact that he's the God of hope, that doesn't just mean that he's hopeful or that he you know, does hope, but it means that he is hope. God is hope. It's kind of the difference between a joyful person and a person who laughs a lot. You know, if you laugh a lot, you could be a joyful person, but you could also be a nervous person. If you laugh a lot, you could be someone who's got some insecurity. And so the difference between a person that laughs a lot and a person that is joyful is that one is something that is done, the other, that is, the other is something that is, that is a part of who you are. And, and God is the God of hope. Hope is who he is. So what that means is that God doesn't just look at a situation and go, oh, I have hope that there's going to be, like, look, or sorry, look at like a struggle and be like, I have hope that something good's going to come out of that. He doesn't just do that. He is the hope in that situation. His presence in our struggles, his presence in the tough things we go through is hope. And so because God is hope, what that means for us is that we, so if, if, if hope is something he is, then hope is something we are because we're made in his image and he has given us his identity when he united us with Christ. And so some of you in this room might call yourself more of a natural optimist. That's great. Some of you in this room might call yourself more of a realist. That's great too. Wherever your natural wiring or personality falls, all, regardless of that, all of us are called to be people of hope because that's the identity that he has given us. And so, yeah, hope is something he is. And I do want to say this. When we say God is a God of hope, we don't mean that he is a naive optimist. It's not like God is looking at the world and saying, you know what, I'm just going to ignore all this bad stuff. It's all great. That's not who he is. Actually, it's crazy. God is more aware of every single fact that is going on in any situation than anyone else. So really, he's like the ultimate realist. God is. Yet he's hopeful. And so in the same way, I believe we're called to be not naive optimists. We're also not called to be cynics, but we're called to be hopeful realists. And so that's what Paul's saying when he says, may the God of hope fill you with hopes that you may abound in hope. Going on, 
Hope is something that we hold to when faith fails. Point number two. Hope is something that we hold to when faith fails. And I want to take a second here and differentiate these two terms. So you can define faith a million different ways based on the context. And so this is one way to look at it. But hope is an expectation of good, whereas faith is an expectation of a specific outcome. So hope is, I expect that something good's going to happen. Don't really know what it is all the time. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But I expect good. Whereas faith is, I expect that that particular thing right there is going to happen. Last time I was up here, I told a story about how my wife Jamie and I pretty supernaturally got our first house that we purchased in June. And one thing that I didn't tell you about, if you, know, if you weren't here or if you forget the story, basically what happened is we saw our dream house. It got purchased before we could go look at it. Then the seller woke up in the middle of the night and felt like they shouldn't sell it to the buyer that had bought it. And then the buyer backed out and then the seller felt like they should let Jamie and I make an offer on it before putting it back on the market. We made an offer on it, got it for a great price. It was amazing. So what I didn't tell you about that is the evening that we found out about the house, before we found out that an out-of-town buyer had come in and purchased it before anyone could look at it. So that night, we were at a rehearsal dinner. If you know Micah and Jenna Dawkins, they, they used to be on staff here. They recently went up to Bethel, Cleveland. We were at their rehearsal dinner, and um, Jenna's sister-in-law, Winnie Fralick, if you, if you know Jonathan Fralick, he leads worship up here once a month. Winnie, his wife, was talking to Jamie, my wife, about that house. And Winnie was like, you know what we're going to do right now? We're going to declare in faith that this house is going to be yours. And Jamie was like, okay, why not? And so, so they prayed and declared, this house is going to be ours in Jesus' name. And then we forgot about that until we'd actually already gotten the house. We're like, wow, maybe it worked. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying like, you know, I'm not preaching name it, claim it theology or anything, but that happened. And so that's an example of faith where it's like, this is a specific thing that we want and we are going to pray for it and we're going to go after it. Hope is a little different. Like I said, hope is expectation of good. It's kind of like, I can remember as a kid, there were Christmases where I knew exactly what I wanted and I knew I had spent the last six months pestering my parents telling them, this is the exact thing I want. Don't get it wrong. And as Christmas came, I had a lot of faith that I was going to get that specific thing. But then there were other Christmases where I didn't really know what to ask for. And so I didn't ask for anything specific, yet I still knew that whatever I got, it was going to be good. That's hope. Hope is I might not know what's coming. I might not know what's in the package, but I know it's good because it's from my dad. And so those are the two, those are the differences there. A great biblical example of hope, I believe, is Psalm 27, 13. It's not on the screen. You can read it on your own if you want. I'm going to read it right here. It says, yet I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Hope is confidence that we're going to see his goodness while we're here. 
So that's faith and hope. And sometimes, unfortunately, we can have a warped understanding of faith that can prevent us from stepping into hope. Here's what I mean. There are, a, there are a number of ways that our faith can get warped or our faith can be kind of twisted or we can look at faith not really how we should. One of them is sometimes when we think about faith, we think that we need to muster up enough faith in order to get a miracle to happen. Like if I'm praying for something, if I can just muster up enough faith and really believe that it's going to happen, then it'll happen. I don't believe that's how faith works. I don't believe that's how God works. I don't think God is sitting up there watching us pray and like, huh, I'll give that prayer like a three out of 10, not doing it. I don't think that's how it works. Also, another way our, our, our faith can get warped sometimes is that we can believe that if I even entertain the idea that this is not going to happen, then I'm going to somehow stop it from happening because that's unbelief. Like, I can't, like if, I, if I'm praying for something to happen and I even start to think the thought, what if it doesn't happen? I need to shut that down right away. I need to stuff it because if I even entertain the idea, then that's unbelief and I'm stopping the miracle from happening. I don't believe that's how it works either. Um, to kind of illustrate this, a couple of weeks ago, you may have heard about a little girl who died named Olive Heligenthal. If you haven't heard about that, she was a two-year-old daughter of a famous Bethel worship leader. And uh, long story short, she passed away and her parents, Callie, and I forget his name, decided they wanted to pray after she had been pronounced dead and she had been sent to the morgue. They decided that they wanted to pray that she would actually be raised from the dead. And so an amazing example of just robust, mature faith. They, um, I was blown away by the way that um, the Callie and her family and then the Bethel community went after that miracle. It was amazing. Quick side note about that. This has nothing to do with hope. <laughs> Quick side note. So if you followed the story, you saw that there were literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people across the world praying for this little girl. And when I see that, I have two reactions. One is, wow, that is amazing. Praise God that all these people are rallying behind this prayer. But then if I'm honest, my second reaction to that is, man, I wonder how people who were in a similar situation who didn't have thousands of people praying for their little boy or their little girl feel when they see this. Like, is the message that's being sent, you're only worthy of getting thousands of people to pray for you if your parent happens to be a Christian celebrity. And so I don't think Bethel or the family did anything wrong. If any, who could blame anyone for reaching out to their friends and family over social media for prayer? And they couldn't help it that you know, all these people shared their posts and it went viral around the world. Like I don't blame them for that, but I wanna call it out that it's a complex situation. And here's the truth, that every single child that's sick deserves that kind of rallying support Amen. in prayer. Every single one. Is it gonna happen? Probably not, but it should. In an ideal world, it would. And so, back to the message. So, um, 
If you, so basically what happened with, in the story was they prayed for six days that this child would be raised from the dead. And again, they didn't have the body like in the church and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't anything weird like that. But they prayed. They prayed hard and after six days, it didn't happen. And so they decided they were gonna transition in, from praying for Olive into grieving her and celebrating her life. And so I think that the story of Olive Heligenthal really shows a beautiful example of radical faith and radical hope. Here's why. I want to read you um, a post from Olive's mom that was from yesterday. So a couple weeks after it happened, haven't heard from her in a couple weeks. This is what she said. Okay. Olive, we miss you, love you so much, and we'll see you soon. We know now more than ever that King Jesus is good and his every word is worth believing and following at any cost. That's the song we'll sing until we're with you again and we finally sing it together. We cannot wait. It's a new day and we're awake for it. This is a victory story. That's hope. They had faith. They prayed with radical faith for her to be raised from the dead. She wasn't, and now they have hope, still. And that's the thing about faith is that even when, or that's the thing about hope, is that even when the, the specific thing that we want to happen doesn't happen, we can still have hope because we serve a God who's good and we serve a God who takes all of the disappointments and all of the pain and all of the struggles in our lives and redeems them for something good and something beautiful. He literally, ta- he re- he literally does form beauty from ashes. And so whatever struggles we face, no matter how hard, no matter how painful, no matter how much faith we had that something else was gonna happen, we can know that he's gonna take those disappointments and turn them into good in our lives. Not just our lives, but the lives of the people around us. That's hope. That's an expectation of good. Why? Because we know he is good. And so just a great example of of radical faith and radical hope. Now, I do want to point out, what about people whose disappointment or their pain, it doesn't seem like it gets redeemed, you know? Like, what if we see someone who something horrible happens to them and it seems like they never recover. Is that proof that hope doesn't always succeed, that sometimes hope fails? The truth is, even if, I don't believe this, I I don't believe this, but even if we never see the goodness of God in the land of the living, even if that happens, we still have an unshakable hope of eternal life with God. Callie and her husband are never going to see Olive again on this side of eternity. They don't have hope for that, but you know what their hope, they do have hope for, they're going to see her again in the next life. And so even if things just seem to go from bad to worse in our life, we can know that we have an unshakable hope of eternal life with him. And I know it kind of sounds like a cop-out answer, like, okay, yeah, that's what you say when you can't say anything else. But 
we should like believe that. We should really believe that eternal life is enough for, for us. Eternal connection with him. Like, I think sometimes because salvation is so easy, because it's so easy to get into a relationship with God, we forget about how amazing it is that we're going to spend eternity with him. Like, imagine if you actually did have to work for your salvation. Like, at the end of your life, God was going to evaluate you and look at all of your good deeds versus all of your bad deeds and then decide if you get to be with him or not. We'd be a whole lot more eternity focused if that were the case. And so that's my challenge to us. Let's not let the ease of how we step into salvation cause us to not appreciate what God has done for us in accomplishing eternal life for us. Okay. So moving on. Point number three, hope is understanding that God can change even the most impossible circumstances. This is why they prayed for Olive, because God can change even the most impossible circumstances. I want to read a passage now from Matthew 1, getting into the home life of Jesus. Let's read Matthew 1, verse 18 and 19. We've read it before in this series. I'm going to read it again and take a different take on it. Here's what it says. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. So when when I've read this over the years... I want, to take a, so I want to take a second and focus specifically on the part where we find out that Joseph was going to break off his engagement quietly. As I've read this over the years, the way that I've like, perceived this story is that Joseph was like, oh, she's pregnant from another man. Guess I better divorce her quietly. <laughs> like it was no big deal. You ever, have you looked at it like that? Have you ever thought about how terrible that would be to be engaged and then all of a sudden the woman you're engaged to is pregnant with what you thought was another man's baby? Like that sucks, right? <laughs> that would be the worst news. And so that's where Joseph was. Like, I think we need to remember that he was a human being. He, was, you know, he wasn't just like nonchalant about it. It kind of feels nonchalant when you read it. He wasn't nonchalant about it. That was a terrible thing for him to go through. And so imagine how relieved he was when he had the dream the next day where the angel told him, don't be afraid. Her baby is from the Holy Spirit and he will save his people from their sins. Not only does he get this great promise about Jesus, but also he realizes, oh, she didn't cheat on me. (laughs) And so for Joseph, when he found out she was pregnant, that probably felt like an impossible situation. Like it is not only is it impossible for me to stay with you because of how much you hurt me, but culturally it's like impossible Nearly impossible for me to stay with you. Like his mind before that dream, but after he found out the news, 
was probably totally made up. He was probably totally sure that, you know what? This is over. But God came through for him. And so I believe that this was Joseph's first time seeing that God can change impossible situations. And I believe it gave him hope probably for the rest of his life. Again, all of this is us theorizing and hypothesizing. So don't take any of this as like black and white truth. But I believe he probably spent the rest of his life having a precedent for, you know what, even when the situation feels or seems impossible, my God can show up and change it. And that same God is our God. And that same truth is true for us. And so if I could theorize for a little bit, I believe that when situations that felt impossible came up in the life of Jesus and Mary and Joseph in their home life, like when, when Joseph wasn't getting enough business as a carpenter and money was getting tight, or when they found out bad news about a family member, or when there was a conflict that Joseph and Mary had that was so great that they thought they wouldn't be able to get through it. I believe whenever those kinds of situations happened, that Joseph and Mary's first thought wasn't, oh no, this is over, there's no hope. But the first thought was, I wonder how God's gonna show up in this. And I believe that is a model that all of us can follow, that in, <clears throat> in our home lives, when these impossible situations come our way or these difficult situations come our way, what would it look like if instead of running to anxiety and hopelessness, if we sought God first in them? What if the first thing we did when we got bad news was we prayed and said, Lord, what are you going to do in this? Lord, give me the strength to walk through this with you. And so I believe that's something we can take. Seek God first in those hard situations. There's another great story, or not, not really a story. It's actually a, a commentary from the author of Hebrews that I think illustrates this idea that God can change the most impossible circumstances. So I want to read Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. This is what it says. <clears throat> it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. Pause. Perfect biblical precedent for what Bethel and Callie did. Continuing on. And in a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. So what happened here? Abraham lost faith. Honestly, what, what I take from this is Abraham lost faith that Isaac would be able to be spared death, but he had so much faith and hope in God that he believed, well, I guess if he dies, God's going to raise him from the dead. That's what it looks like to have the, the, the mentality that God can change even the most impossible circumstances. So going along with that story, 
of, of Abraham and Isaac. <clears throat> hope, point number four, hope is choosing not to consume yourself with the worst case scenario. I believe that when we are choosing to have a mentality and a perspective of hope, we are choosing not to consume ourselves. Now, again, I'm not saying we stuff and we don't even consider the worst case scenario, but we don't, maybe we consider it, but we don't consume ourselves with it. We don't dwell on it. You want a surefire way to rob yourself of hope? Then dwell on the worst case scenario when an issue comes your way. Abraham maintained a perspective of hope. Even when it seemed that his son Isaac's death was imminent, he still had a perspective of hope. He wasn't dwelling on or consuming himself with the worst case scenario. And so what this tells me is that sometimes biblical hope is not something that just happens to me, but it's something I choose. We actually have to choose to be in hope sometimes because naturally we'll be hopeless. Kind of a funny example of this. So recently, Jamie and I went to visit some of her family in North Carolina that I had never met before. And I know for some of you weird extroverted people, meeting new people where you've never interacted with them before and you can't read them really, and you have no clue what they're gonna to wanna to talk about, that like excites you. You're like, wow, a new challenge. As an introvert, for all the introverts in the room, that terrifies us. Can I get an amen to that, <laughs> right? So, so I'm not gonna lie, as we went to visit all these new family members that I had never met, didn't even know what they looked like, I had a little bit of anxiety. And there was a moment where, now another side note to this, I was extremely exhausted leading up to this trip because it was the week of the Kingdom Pursuit Conference for those of you that came to that here. So I was doing tons of work for that and a number of other things made me really tired. And so leading up to this trip, there was a time where I started to experience some anxiety about meeting these family members. And then I started to imagine the worst case scenario, like, oh no, I'm gonna say something stupid. They're gonna like feel weird around me because I'm a pastor. And then um, they're gonna view me as pretentious. Maybe they're gonna cuss me out. Maybe they're gonna kick us out of their house. Maybe we're gonna have to go home early. You know how sometimes your thoughts just snowball into like, weird fantasy land, you know, <clears throat> but I had to stop and be like, no, you know what? I'm going to have a great connection with them. <clears throat> and even if I don't, it's going to be okay. And it's not, you know, the worst case scenario rarely happens. It really, like, if you look at all of the problems or struggles you've gone through in your life, and you were to count all of them, you know, whether it was 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, it would probably be a very small percentage of them where the worst thing that could have happened actually happened. And you know what? As long as we're not talking about like a death or a loss, sometimes those stories can be like funny stories five years later. Yeah. But um, the worst case scenario actually rarely happens. And what would it have done to me if going into meeting those family members, I had just been thinking about and dwelling on and living in my, my internal reality was the worst thing is going to happen. It probably would have actually impeded my ability to connect with them. And that's what happens when we 
live in that place where we're continually dwelling on the worst case scenarios that not only are we causing ourselves unnecessary anxiety and we're not thinking like God thinks, but also it actually probably harms the thing that we're trying to do. It probably makes connecting with God harder, makes connecting with people harder. Why? Again, because hope is the mindset of the kingdom. And so let's not imagine the worst case scenario. This is kind of what I feel like probably, this, or at least this, again, this is all theorizing. This could have happened when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus. First off, what a thing to lose God, right? Like they lost the son of God. <laughs> so I don't know what else to say about that. But <clears throat> so when Mary and Joseph, if you know the story, they were, all, they were traveling with family members. Jesus was 12 years old, and all of a sudden, they realized he was gone. Now, I'm not a parent, but any parents in the room, have you ever lost a child before, and you're willing to? No, nah, never mind. I won't even make you raise your hand. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so I've heard, both from my friends and from my parents when they've lost me, that there's panic involved there, right? <laughs> So, and then, and you know, what an easy place to start imagining the worst case scenario. They're probably dead. They've probably been kidnapped. Blah, blah, blah. So I wonder if when Joseph and Mary lost Jesus, I wonder if they maybe considered, like maybe the worst case scenario came to mind, but they chose not to dwell there because they were like, man, all these things have happened in our life and God has rescued us from them already. So maybe we can trust God that the worst thing is probably not going to happen. You know, maybe. And then, turns out, the worst thing didn't happen. He was in church. What a great thing. <clears throat> okay. And so I think for us, what this can mean is that, this is kind of taking it to a relational standpoint, what if in our homes, what if with those intercorp of people we do life with, what if we chose to assume the best case scenario scenario about the people in our lives when they maybe said something that irritated us or said something that hurt us instead of assumed the worst case scenario? What would, it, what would it look like if you assumed the best of your spouse or you assumed the best of your sibling or your parent or your friend or whoever it might be when they said something mean to you? Now, I'm not saying that like if you have absolute concrete proof. Like if, you know, you catch someone in a bold-faced lie, I'm not saying you should be like, well, maybe they didn't actually lie. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is when there's gray, when there's ambiguity, when you can't know for sure, instead of letting your mind write that story that says, oh, they did that or they said that because they're such a blah, blah, blah. What if you chose to assume the best? I think that is a practical way that we can not go to the worst case scenario in our minds, in our homes. And so lastly, hope comes from holding fast to what God has said. I'm, I'm gonna, we're not gonna read the text just to save some time, but basically Mary and Joseph found out in Matthew chapter two they found out that King Herod 
was coming after them to kill Jesus. And he was a two-year-old at the time. And that's probably a scary thing. And even though they got warned by an angel and they were told that they, they were to flee to Egypt, like we're talking about a poor young couple that is, has a, a king coming after them. Like, I wonder how comforting it was to them that God said, go to Egypt. I wonder if they, did th- I wonder if they thought, well, if he can get us in Bethlehem, he can get us in Egypt. Like, I just wonder what they're meant. I wonder if, like, I think when we read that, we think, oh, shoo, we're going to Egypt. Okay, it's all good. I wonder if they were still, like, living in fear about that situation day in and day out, even when they were in Egypt. Who knows? But, you know, again, we can't know. But what I think we could know, what they could have known, is that even though they had this scary situation they were living in, God had told them two years earlier in Matthew chapter one that Jesus was gonna grow up and save his people from their sins, that he would be the Messiah, that he was God with us. And so when you have a word from God like that, where he has told you something, hope looks like holding fast to that even if the situation around you looks bleak. And I know for me in my life, there were, when I first came to Christ, when I first accepted Jesus, I was sitting in my apartment as a 19-year-old in Clifton, and, and I had grown up in church, and I had been to conferences. I had real experiences with God. I think I was probably saved, but I'd never chosen to follow him. When I was sitting in my apartment one night, God reached out to me and said to me so clearly, it wasn't audible, but it almost feels like it was audible because of how clear it was. Luke, how are you going to lead anyone else to believe in me if you're not following me yourself? And so I said yes to him. And pretty soon after I said yes to him, I felt, I had a conviction, I believed, I heard God that I was going to go into ministry. Now, I had no clue what that was going to look like. At first, I thought I was going to be a traveling apologist going city to city debating atheists. And and then I thought that I was going to be a youth pastor. And then at one point in my life, I thought that I was going to start a house church movement that spread all across the world. And what I'm realizing is that sometimes as God does things in our lives, we can start to put our faith in the thing he's doing instead of in him. And so where I am right now is, you know what? I believe God has a call in my life to do something. And I thought it was going to be this. I thought it was going to be this. I thought it was going to be this. What I'm saying now is I don't know what it's going to be because my hope isn't in a thing. My hope is in him. And I know that he is going to lead me into something amazing. And so that's the... That's what it looks like to hold on to something, to hold on to what God has said. And so I want to encourage you. Have you ever asked God for words like that that you can hold on to for people in your home? Like what is God saying to you right now about your spouse? What's he saying to you about your kids? What's he saying to you about your friend? What's he saying to you about your parents, your siblings, your grandparents, whatever your home looks like? whatever that inner core is, what if we took time to ask him, what are you saying about this person? And then we lived with that word in mind through the hard and 
these in the good times. I think that would profoundly impact our homes. I think that would bring hope into our homes. So I'd like to invite you all to stand with me. I don't know if this is just gonna be like a closing prayer or if God's gonna actually do something in you know, all of us or some of us right now, but let's, before we leave and go do whatever we're gonna do with the rest of our Sunday, let's take a second, and I know preachers always say this, but let's do it. Let's take a second and see if there's anything else in these last five minutes that he wants to do in us or through us. So Holy Spirit, we invite your presence in Jesus' name. Thank you, you are the God of hope. Thank you that you've made us in your image. You've called us to be people of hope. Hmm. Okay, I think God wants to do this. If you are, if you've been in a situation lately where it's been hard to keep hope, and you'd be willing to let some people say a quick prayer for you, nothing weird, nothing long, just real quick. Would you just pop your hand up? Can you keep it up for a second? If your hand isn't up and you'd be willing to walk over to someone who does have a hand up and put your hand, if, if, if you have their permission, put your hand on their shoulder, would you do that? And once someone's got a hand on your shoulder, can you put your hand down? Let's get someone for everybody. Got some hands in the back still, if we could get some people. One right here. Okay. Now, why don't we just take a second as a body, why don't you just say a prayer for them right now? It doesn't have to be anything complicated, but if you would pray out loud for them right now, that God would fill them with hope. Just go ahead and start praying. Yeah, pray out loud. Rebuke anxiety. So Father, we do say, in Jesus' name, be filled with hope. Every person that put their hand up, be filled with the hope of God in Jesus' name, that the presence of God in your situation is hope for your situation, that he can change even the most impossible circumstances. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.